You are listening to Understanding Christianity. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Cole. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. In recent days, I've been interacting with provisionism, which is a unique theology that is not Calvinism and it's not Arminianism. So what exactly is provisionism? Well, in this podcast, I'm going to address the issue from an historical perspective, looking at three individuals that are famous in history. We're going to look at Arminius, we're going to look at John Wesley, and we're going to look at Charles Spurgeon. So the name of this podcast is Arminius, Wesley, and Spurgeon on the problems with provisionism. So let's just recap what provisionists believe. Uh, provisionists deny total inability. And what they assert is those with hearts of stone can cry out to God and ask for a heart of flesh. Just because you had of a heart of stone doesn't mean that you're incapable of asking for a heart of flesh. And really what that does is it gets the cart before the horse because it denies any type of deadness and sin or inability or any type of bondage of the will. And we know from Scripture that even those that are in bondage to sin can't even recognize their need for a Savior or cry out and ask for a new heart because John 3 says you must be born again. And Jesus says you cannot even see the kingdom of God unless you are born again. So an unregenerate sinner cannot just simply ask for a new heart of flesh. That heart of stone renders a sinner incapable of even asking for God to do that in repentance and belief. So let's do a guess who said this. Okay, I kind of already tipped my hand at the three people that we're going to be looking at in this podcast, but guess who said this. Okay, so I'm going to get, give a quote and I want you to guess who said it. Quote, in this state of sin, the free will of man toward the true good is not only wounded, maimed, infirm, bent, and weakened, but it is also imprisoned, destroyed, and lost. And its powers are not only debilitated and useless unless they be assisted by grace, but it has no powers whatever except such as are excited by divine grace. That is a direct quote from Jacob Arminius. Yes, the father of Arminianism, Arminianism, Jacob Arminius, believed in not only total depravity, but total moral and spiritual inability. He tried to distance himself from Pelagianism by saying that, yes, we're not just weakened by the fall, but we are totally depraved and in the bondage of the will. Listen to what else Arminius said. He said, quote, But in his lapsed and sinful state, man is not capable of and by himself either to think, to will, or to do that which is really good. But it is necessary for him to be regenerated and renewed in his intellect, affections, or will, and in all his powers by God in Christ through the Holy Spirit. Spirit. That is Arminius on moral and spiritual inability. 
the same thing that we as Reformed theologians also understand the Bible to teach. Arminius also said this, quote, The sufficiency of grace must be ascribed to the assistance of the Holy Spirit by which he assists the preaching of the gospel as an organ or instrument by which he, the Holy Spirit, is accustomed to be efficacious in the hearts of the hearers. Now, notice the difference here because provisionists will say that the preaching of the gospel is the necessary means of salvation. That once a sinner hears the gospel, he has the innate ability to respond positively to that gospel appeal. There is no need for an extra, what they would call extra work of mystical internal grace that operates on the soul of a dead sinner to do something internally, supernaturally. But notice what Arminius says here. He says, yes, there must be the outward call of the gospel, the preaching of the gospel, as the instrument by which the Holy Spirit uses, but the Holy Spirit comes along and is efficacious in the hearts of the hearers. Notice how he also talks about the need for the Holy Spirit to do an internal work in the heart. Let me give you another quote. He also said this, quote, as the act of faith is not in the power of a carnal, sensual, and sinful man, and no one can perform this act except through the grace of God. So again, Arminius believes in total moral and spiritual inability that the sinful person is in bondage to sin and cannot act in faith or repentance without some type of grace. Now, remember, the difference between Arminianism and Calvinism is not does grace need to be present from the Holy Spirit. It's the nature of the grace. Calvinists and Arminians both start at the same starting point of total depravity, total inability, that we are dead in sin, we are in bondage to sin, and we cannot repent and believe. Now again, the Arminian believes that God gives provenient grace to all people, not just the elect, and that provenient grace is an internal supernatural grace that goes into the heart of a sinner, and that does enable a person to get back to the position that they were in uh, pre-fall, like Adam, before the fall, to be restored with that libertarian free will, where you can cooperate with that grace or you can resist that grace. Now, as Calvinists, we believe that it's a sovereign grace. It's a regenerative grace that God gives only to the elect that actually does bring about repentance and faith. It cannot be resisted. When God chooses to regenerate one of his elect, it will happen and it cannot not happen. So Arminians and Calvinists start at the same place. Now, let's do another guess who said this. So, so those were some quotes from the father of Arminianism himself, Jacob Arminianus. So let's uh, guess who said this. Uh, this famous theologian claimed that his theology was, quote, within a hair's breadth of Calvin's teaching. And he denied, quote, all natural free will and the power antecedent to grace. Okay, guess who said that? That is none other than John Wesley. So John Wesley is the second most famous Arminian the father of Methodism. And so what I want to do now is to give you some quotations from some of Wesley's more important sermons. So we have a lot of sermons from Wesley. A lot of his systematic theology comes out in his sermons as far as his understanding of total inability, his understanding of prevenient grace. And again, in this podcast, we're looking at how provisionism 
with those from Leighton Flowers and others is not Arminianism. And obviously it's not Calvinism, so what is it? And so let's just look at some of the statements from John Wesley. This is from his sermon called Original Sin. He says this, We cannot by any of our natural faculties attain the knowledge of God. In like manner, so long as men remain in their natural blindness of understanding, they are not sensible of their spiritual needs. No man loves God by nature. In our natural state, we cannot conceive how anyone should delight in him. Now notice, that statement goes against provisionism. Man in his natural state cannot understand his need. He, he doesn't even know that he has a need to be saved. He cannot, in his heart of flesh, cry out and ask for a heart of, I mean, a heart of stone to cry out for a heart of flesh. No man loves God by nature. So again, Wesley affirmed, like Arminius, this total inability of sinners who cannot, when the gospel appeal is given, just merely be responsible to receive that and repent and believe. He also says this from another sermon called Working Out Our Own Salvation. He says this, quote, Our will depraved, is wholly bent to indulge our natural corruption, and since the fall, no child of man has a natural power to choose anything that is truly good. Now that sounds a lot like the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith and the Westminster Confession of Faith. We have no natural power to choose anything that's truly good. So since the fall, because of our corruption in Adam, because we are totally depraved, we do not have the natural power to choose anything that is truly good. He also um, says this in his sermon of free will. Quote, the condition of man after the fall of Adam is such that he cannot turn and prepare himself by his own natural strength and good works to faith in calling upon God. Again, that goes right against the main tenet of provisionism that man can call upon God when he hears the gospel appeal. Again, provisionists deny that there's anything that happened in the fall that renders man incapable from birth of responding positively to the gospel appeal. Again, this is not what provisionism teaches. So John Wesley is very clear that man in his natural state is totally morally, spiritually unable to repent and believe. Let's just look at another quote from John Wesley. This is from his sermon called The Circumcision of the Heart. Quote, We are not sufficient of ourselves to help ourselves. Without the Spirit of God, we can do nothing but add sin to sin. He is alone the one who works in us by his almighty power, either to will or to do that which is good. It is impossible for us to even think good thoughts without the supernatural assistance of the Holy Spirit to create in ourselves or to renew our whole souls in righteousness and true holiness. He also believed that this supernatural inward provenient grace, quote, restored the capacity for hearing God. Now, again, what does provisionism state? That man in his natural state can hear 
the gospel appeal, and once he hears the gospel appeal, he can respond positively by repenting and believing. Wesley says, no, that is not inherent in fallen humanity. When prevenient grace comes, and again, the, the Arminian Wesleyan view of prevenient grace comes, when that prevenient grace comes, it restores that capacity to hear. So you did not have the capacity to hear the gospel appeal before this prevenient grace came. So again, it, that's why Calvinism and Arminianism are a hair's breadth within each other, according to Wesley, because we both start at that issue of total inability and total depravity. We can't hear the gospel appeal and just simply respond to it. God has to do some type of internal work of grace. Wesley also said this, quote, assisting grace is that influence of the Holy Spirit on the mind, which sets our duty in so strong a light and so convince us of its consequences that it inclines our will to accept and comply with it. So he's giving a definition of prevenient grace, this assisting prevenient grace. It is the work of the Holy Spirit on the mind, in the heart, in the soul. Again, Arminianism believes that, that the Holy Spirit has to do an internal, supernatural, mystical work of grace in the heart of mind to bring about that renewed will that you can either cooperate with God or resist that. So provisionists argue that deadness does not mean that sinners are unable to believe in Jesus or ask for mercy when presented the gospel. Now, it's very interesting. This past week over the Christmas break, I read a book, very helpful book, by an Arminian scholar. I think it's good to, to read what others are saying. And so this is from an Arminian scholar. His name is W. Brian Shelton. He is a professor of theology, and he's the chair of Christian Studies and Philosophy at Asbury University in Kentucky. So Asbury University is one of the top Wesleyan Arminian seminaries that is still theologically conservative. And W. Brian Shelton has written this book called Prevenient Grace, God's Provision for Fallen Humanity. And so it's helpful to hear from a modern Arminian scholar define what they believe. And here's what he wrote. He asked the question, what is prevenient grace? And his answer is, it is the belief that God enables all people to exercise saving faith in Christ by mitigating the effects of sinful depravity. Now, provisionists would agree with the first half of that statement. It's the belief that God enables all people to exercise saving faith. And how does that enablement come? It comes through hearing the gospel. The gospel appeal is sufficient. But Shelton goes on to say that it's a grace that mitigates or overcomes or has to deal with the effects of sinful depravity. So there's something inherent in humans, fallen in Adam, dead in their trespasses and sins, that has to be mitigated or overcome. And their answer is, it's an enabling grace given to all people. Again, as Calvinists, we don't believe it's given to all people. It's a prevenient grace. It's a grace that comes before, but it's only given to the elect. Now, here's why he says, why is it necessary? Why is prevenient grace necessary? And this is very important to what he says. He says, original sin prevents us from doing spiritual good acts. 
such as recognizing our need for a Savior, repenting of our sins, and believing in Christ. The result is that no one can ever repent without God's assistance. Now, notice how that is very close to Calvinism. We would agree with that statement. Original sin prevents us from doing anything good. And those good acts is we can't even recognize our need for a Savior. We can't repent of our sins. We can't believe in Jesus. We would never repent and believe without God's assistance. Now, we would probably not use the word assistance. We would say God's supernatural overcoming irresistible grace and regeneration. But a provisionist like Leighton Flowers would not agree with this statement by this Arminian. Now, it's interesting. Shelton says there are two modern alternatives to classical Arminianism. Now, he doesn't list provision in here because I don't think this was written a few years ago, but I don't think that there's enough um, movement of provisionism outside maybe some Southern Baptists and other circles that Arminians aren't really dealing with it as much. But, but notice he gives the two alternatives. The first is Calvinism. He says, no, number one, God predestines some to repent and leaves others unable to respond to the preached gospel due to their spiritual inability, as in the Reformed tradition. Okay, we understand that. We, this is who we are. But I want you to notice the second alternative he gives. He says, the second alternative to classic Arminianism, besides Reformed theology, is all people are partially affected by original sin so that they can repent of their own ability naturally as in the Orthodox tradition. Okay. Eastern Orthodox theology, he says, is the other alternative. Now, I'm doing research right now, so this is going to be a future podcast that will be coming out soon to show the theology of the Eastern Fathers, Eastern Orthodox. And so their view, what I'm finding out, and I have a friend that is a history, he's getting his doctorate in history at a Southern Seminary. And uh, he's working with the Patristic Fathers, and he's given me some resources and some help in this. And so I'm going to be doing a little bit more research and actually getting some help from him, who's getting his Ph.D. in this. But Eastern Orthodox theology, I think, is very close to provisionism. But notice what this Arminian scholar says about Eastern Orthodox. He says people are partially affected by the fall. The original sin, it's, it's, it's partially affected, and they can repent of their own natural ability. Now, that's provisionism. They, they do believe in original sin, but they only believe in a partial affecting of original sin. It doesn't render someone totally unable to repent and believe. So I find it fascinating that the Eastern Orthodox position that he offers as an alternative is very close to provisionism. I want us to now... Listen to Leighton Flowers, a clip. Now, this is from about a year ago, and he oftentimes does these short YouTube clips, which I'm thankful for. Um, and this is the clip called, What is the Holy Spirit's Role in Salvation? What is the Holy Spirit's Role in Salvation? And I, and I appreciate Leighton Flowers because he does lay out a positive case for what they believe. And again, is provisionism Arminianism? No. Is provisionism Calvinism? No, it's its own animal. And in the previous podcast, I talked about how it was semi-Pelagianism historically. 
It comes from a liberal understanding of the human nature from uh, E.Y. Mullins and other Southern Baptist scholars in the 20th century that have kind of um, denied total inability, and it kind of rose to the surface in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. I'm going to be doing a podcast on Eastern Orthodoxy. So it's very interesting that provisionism is really nothing new. It's not necessarily a new theology. It's a repackaged theology that comes from semi-Pelagianism in the 4th and 5th century. It comes from Eastern Orthodoxy, as we'll see in the next podcast. And it comes from a liberal drift in Southern Baptist theology in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. But let's listen to Leighton Flowers. This is about a a two-minute clip. Um, I'm going to... uh, the, the, The first clip's about a minute. And so let's listen to that, and then we'll respond. But I, I'm not trying to suggest the, that the Holy Spirit doesn't work through many other means, and that the, the means that he works through um, are sufficient to do exactly what they're meant to do. Um, I, I just simply, I, I simply reject the concept or idea that because of a nature we're born with by decree has somehow caused us beyond our control to be incapable of understanding plainly spoken truth. It, 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 when you really think about it, fathom this concept and idea that you're born able to believe the claims of the Quran and fly a jet plane into a building so that you can get 72 virgins. Uh, you can believe that, but for some reason, God decreed for you not to be able to believe the plain truth of the Bible. I, I, I'm just trying to, where, where does this come from? I think it's just this just theological baggage that's just been kind of dumped onto the text. Uh, of course we can believe the truth of the gospel. Um, there's no reason that people can't believe the truth of the gospel. Okay, so notice what he says. He rejects the idea that we are born with a nature by God's decree with an inability to understand plainly spoken truth. Okay, that's the provisionist position. We are not born totally unable morally or spiritually to repent and believe. Or, as Arminius and John Wesley have both said, we are born in a fallen condition where we can't even understand plain truth. We can't understand the gospel appeal. We can't even understand our need for salvation. We can't repent and believe because we are totally depraved. Now, what he sometimes does, and this is what Leighton Flowers does a lot, is that he basically does not really give a clear definition of conversion. What he often says is that the way a person is saved is basically understanding the facts of the gospel. Uh, we, we are born able to understand our need for salvation. Well, that's not conversion, understanding our need, or just understanding the facts. Uh, he basically makes the same argument that he does a lot of times, that an unregenerate person can understand the claims of the Quran, but not the Bible. Again, this is comparing apples to oranges. Uh, This is not saving faith. An unregenerate Muslim understanding the claims of the Quran and then acting upon those claims by flying into a plane on a suicide bomber mission is not the same thing as an unregenerate sinner having a changed will so that he or she can repent and believe and place personal faith in Christ. Again, this is not theological baggage salvation conversion is not just understanding the facts or the claims of the Bible and then acting upon those. Now, let's go to our confession because we always go back to the 1689. It's very helpful. Again, the confession is not on par with scripture. It's a good 
concise summary of what we believe. So this is in chapter 14, the chapter on saving faith in the 1689. And I'm just going to read from paragraph two because I think it's very important. By this faith, Christians believe to be true everything revealed in the word, recognizing it as the authority of God himself. They also perceive that the word is more excellent than every other writing and everything else in the world because it displays the glory of God in his attributes, the excellencies of Christ in his nature and offices, and the power and fullness of the Holy Spirit in his activities and operations. So they are enabled to entrust their souls to the truth believed. Okay, now, Leighton Flowers would agree with this statement up to this point in our confession, that we do believe the word. Part of conversion, part of saving faith is understanding and believing God's word to be true, that God is who he says he is, as revealed in the scriptures, that it is the word of God. It teaches us about who Jesus is, his saving office, our need for salvation, sin, all of these things. We can entrust our souls to what the scripture says. Let's go on and hear what else the confession tells us as we continue reading. They respond differently according to the content of each particular passage, obeying the commands, trembling at the threatenings, and embracing the promises of God for the life and the one to come. But... The principal acts of saving faith focus directly on Christ, accepting, receiving, and resting upon him alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life by virtue of the covenant of grace. So saving faith is more than just believing the claims of the Bible. It is actually trusting in Jesus alone for salvation which you could not do before in your unregenerate state. God has to give you the gifts of repentance and faith in order for you to rest and receive and accept Jesus Christ alone. That's what conversion is, is trusting in Christ, not just believing the claims of the Bible or becoming a Muslim by believing the claims of the Quran. He's confusing saving faith, regeneration, conversion with just believing mere facts that are presented in, in, a, in a theological document. Now, let's listen to the rest of this clip from Leighton Flowers. Um, the, the only way someone would get into that kind of condition is if they have suppressed the truth for so long um, and they're relying upon the wisdom of the world versus the wisdom of God. Um, th that's reason that people reject the truth of God is because they're listening to other voices and they're, they're ignoring the voice of the, the Holy Spirit, and they're ignoring the means by which the Holy Spirit is making his truth known. And so we, we, we put that back on to, uh, to, to the individual. That, that's why the individual is blameworthy. And we don't put it back onto a decree of God or some kind of a withholding of grace based upon what God does and saying, well, you know what, I'll give that person sufficient grace, but not that person or something like that. That I, I just don't I don't find that anywhere in the pages of Scripture. I think every time it speaks, it always speaks about the individual being responsible, able to respond to the light and the revelation that God's bringing to that person. Now, here he gives the reason why a person can't believe. Now, our answer would be a person cannot believe because they are born in a state of spiritual inability. His answer is they are suppressing the truth. They are ignoring the voice of the Holy Spirit. Okay, we would say the same thing. An unregenerate person is suppressing the truth. An unregenerate person is ignoring the voice of the Holy Spirit. But why? Why are they doing that? According to Leighton Flowers' view, it is due to prolonged rejection through use of libertarian free will to 
reject over and over again that that person has become hardened over time. Their answer is not our answer. Their answer is not the Arminian answer. It's not total inability that we're born with that causes or is the source of sinners suppressing the truth and ignoring the voice of the Holy Spirit. Yes, we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Yes, we ignore the voice of the Holy Spirit. But why? We do that because we're in bondage to sin. Our wills are enslaved. We're enemies of God. We cannot please God. We're spiritually dead. We, we can't understand truth. We can't listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit. It's something that we are born with in a condition as a result of the fall of Adam. It's not something that we grow in over time using our libertarian free will to keep rejecting and to keep rejecting them. And then we get to the point where we suppress the truth through our own libertarian free will. In our unregenerate state, we can't do anything but suppress the truth. So according to provisionism, and here with Leighton Flowers, the bottom line is this. Unregenerate sinners are able to respond to plain truth. And again, what's the response? Is it just believing the claims of the Bible? Or is it truly repentance and faith that flows from a new heart given in regeneration? And let's just ask the question, does the unregenerate heart want to cry out for mercy? without any direct influence on the soul by the Holy Spirit. No, the unregenerate heart doesn't want to cry out. They will often say that just because you are dead in sin doesn't mean you don't want to cry out and ask for help, or just because you had a hard stone doesn't mean that you don't want a heart of flesh and you can cry out for that. No, in your unregenerate state, you don't even want to cry out for mercy. And not only that, you can't cry out. The heart of stone can't cry out. That heart of stone needs to be sovereignly replaced by God so that, or as a result, the sinners can now want to cry out and sinners can cry out for salvation. Which goes back to the whole issue that regeneration does indeed precede faith. Now, I said we would do Arminius, Wesley, and Spurgeon. So let's move to Charles Spurgeon. This is from a sermon called The Fourfold Treasure. As a matter of fact, I was um, doing preparation for a Christmas Day sermon, and um, I was looking at Spurgeon's sermon just to kind of get some encouragement. And it's interesting how when you read some of Spurgeon's sermons, just these gems come out and quotes that you, you're not using in your sermon because it's not really pertaining or it's not something you quote in your sermon. But man, I'm like, oh, I've got to use that quote for a future podcast because of what Spurgeon says. So listen to what he says. Quote, you had never come to Christ to seek for mercy if, first of all, the Spirit of God had not appeared to you to show you your need and to lead you to cry for the mercy that you needed. Through God's operation, as well as through God's decree, you are this day in Christ Jesus. Now that one quote packs a theological punch. Think about the theology in that statement from Spurgeon. The first thing he says is that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit must come to you first and show you your need for mercy. He says you would never have cried out for mercy without the work of the Spirit to lead you to do that, to cast yourself at the mercy of Jesus. And then he gives two reasons why you came to Christ. First, he says it was by God's decree. Now, he doesn't unpack this in the sermon, but we know what he means because of the rest of the Spurgeon's theology. The decree of God is 
unconditional election. You were predestined before the foundation of the world to believe in Jesus, to come to faith. It's God's decree that you were saved. But second, he says it's through God's operation. That is, at a point in time, the Spirit regenerated you and gave you a new heart so that you would cry out for mercy. Why do you need to be born again first to cry out for mercy? Because no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. No one can see their need or recognize their need or or even know that they need a heart of flesh without the Spirit first coming and doing that operation deep in the soul to bring about regeneration. Provisionists argue that seeing the kingdom of God is not the same thing as admitting your need for salvation that comes from the king of the kingdom of God. They would say that just because you can't see the kingdom of God doesn't mean that you can't admit that you need to see the kingdom of God, that you want the kingdom of God. It just means you can't be saved by your own works, but you can admit your need. Again, that is not what the Bible teaches. You can't even see your need for the kingdom of God unless the Holy Spirit causes you to be born again. Now, a provisionist would agree with Spurgeon, but they would change the definitions. They would say, oh yeah, we agree with Spurgeon. God needs to do a work of grace. But their definition of that work of grace is not based upon God's decree of unconditional election, and it's not based upon God's regenerative work in the soul of an elect person bringing about repentance and faith as supernatural gifts. They would just say that the work of grace that the the Spirit does is the gospel appeal. It's gracious. The, 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 The gospel appeal is gracious. It's Holy Spirit wrought. It comes from the Holy Spirit. That is the Holy Spirit grace. And then they would also say it's not by God's decree of unconditional election. It was more of a corporate election or a whosoever would use their free will would be placed in Christ. Now, let me give you another quote from Spurgeon in Morning and Evening. This is the January 14th morning reading. If you don't have Morning and Evening by Charles Spurgeon, you really need to get it. It's basically daily devotions from all over the scriptures of just his... um, devotional thoughts. It may be a good thing to start off the new year, and it's it's basically has two readings a day, a morning, evening, and evening reading, and it's by date. So this is from January 14th's morning reading. Quote, by the words to save, we understand the whole work of the great, the whole of the great work of salvation from the first holy desire onward to complete sanctification. Christ is not mighty to save those who repent, but is able to make men repent. He will carry those to heaven who believe, but he is moreover mighty to give men new hearts and to work faith in them. He is mighty to make the man who hates holiness love it and to constrain the despiser of his name to bend the knee before him. So salvation has to be an internal work where God makes a sinner repent and God works faith into the heart. Unless God sovereignly and supernaturally does those things, no person would ever see their need for a salvation, a Savior. No one would ever cry out for a new heart. No one would ever place their faith in Christ. Now, this is a, a long quote from Spurgeon, but um, this is from his sermon 
sovereign grace and man's responsibility. And this was preached on August 1st, 1858. So let me just read this to you. It's a little long quote, but I think it's, it's important. Again, the grace of God is sovereign. By that word, we mean that God has the absolute right to give that grace where he chooses and to withhold it where he pleases. He's not bound to give it to any man, much less to all men. And if he chooses to give it to one man and not another, his answer is, is your eye evil because my eye is good? Can I not do as I will with my own? I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. The only reason why any man ever begins to pray is because God has put previous grace in his heart, which leads him to pray. I remember when I was converted to God, I was an Arminian thoroughly. I thought I had begun the good work myself, and I used to sit down and think, well, I sought the Lord four years before I found him. And I think I began to compliment myself upon the fact that I had perseveringly entreated of him in the midst of much discouragement. But one day the thought struck me, how was it you came to seek God? And in an instant, the answer came from my soul. Why? Because he led me to do it. He must first have shown me my need of him or else I should never have sought him. He must have shown me his preciousness or I never should have thought him worth seeking. And at once, I saw the doctrines of grace as clear as possible. God must begin. Nature can never rise above itself. You put water into a reservoir, and it will rise as high as that, but no higher if it left alone. Now, it is not in human nature to seek the Lord. Human nature is depraved, and therefore there must be the extraordinary pressure of the Holy Spirit put upon the heart to lead us first to ask for mercy. No provisionist would agree with Spurgeon on this. Their argument is that, sure, when the gospel appeal comes, you see your need, you can ask for mercy, you can cry out for mercy just because you are a slave to sin doesn't mean that you can't ask to be released from sin. Just because you have a heart of stone doesn't mean that you can't ask God to give you a heart of flesh. And what the Bible says, and what even Arminius says, and what Wesley says, and what Spurgeon says, is that no man or woman who's in bondage to sin who's enslaved to sin, who's spiritually dead in their trespasses, can cry out, or will they want to cry out? They can't just ask God to do this work without, as Spurgeon says it here, the extraordinary pressure of the Holy Spirit put upon the heart. That extraordinary pressure put upon our hearts, deep in our hearts. Now, again, as Calvinists, we agree with Spurgeon that, that it is a regenerative, effectual, sovereign power. It's an extraordinary pressure that actually brings about repentance and faith to the elect only. The Arminian says, yes, there has to be extraordinary pressure of the Holy Spirit put upon the heart, but that is given to all people. It's a prevenient grace that enables you to use your free will at that point to accept the free gift of salvation or to reject it. But there has to be something to mitigate the effects of the fall. So as we have seen in this podcast, Arminius, Wesley, and Spurgeon all agree that there are problems with provisionism. Well, until next time, I hope you have a great first of the year. Happy New Year 2023. 
Thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity. Until next time, where we all keep our eyes fixed on Jesus.